0: Today's scripture is from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your Father made our yoke heavy, now therefore lighten the hard service of your Father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I actually went up and turned my mic off. That's not the move you're supposed to make. So, Jared was kind enough to give me hot sauce before the service. I'm in Tucson, and I get hot sauce. Can I get an amen? Amen. I always tell people I'm from Colorado that um, Arizona hot sauce is or Arizona ketchup is Cholula. So my name Tyler Johnson. I am with Redemption Arizona and have been the lead pastor of Redemption Arizona, which is a multi-congregational church uh, for just about since its inception. So it is a delight and a joy uh, to be back with you uh, preaching in the Safford School. I actually love this space. It feels like you're in this really old church with a balcony and the creaking of the chairs. Uh, So I like that, but I like being with you even more. We are finishing up a series um, that we have titled, We Want a King, where we're looking in um, the Old Testament at these kings of Saul, David, Solomon, and now today, Rehoboam. And anytime we get at the Old Testament, there's something that's very true. It's a little weird. Am I right? I mean, the Bible, for most of us, the Bible itself can feel awkward um, and weird. And when you start reading it, or probably even when you continue reading it, you're, if you're honest, you're like, I don't even know if I have a clue what this is saying. Well, when you get to the Old Testament, it seems for most of us um, experientially to get even weirder. So, in the Bible, I like to remind myself of this verse in Romans where the Apostle Paul speaks to us about the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Old Testament, and he says this for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now leave that up there for just a minute. That means at a very simple level that scripture is written for us. I think oftentimes we open the Bible and we feel all of this burden to make ourselves understand. Almost like we have to catch up with God and we can forget or not recognize that actually scripture was written by God to us. That God cares enough about us to articulate himself that he writes for us. So even in this weird stuff, the Old Testament scriptures, what was written in former days, was written for us to instruct us And to develop in us endurance that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, that word is really a powerful word and a needed word in our world, right? Like hope, when you think about that. Many of us sitting in here as individuals, if we're honest, feel right now like we're hopeless. The rest of us would look around and say the world feels at many points hopeless. Like when we look out at the world and there seems to be this significant moral dissolution, meaning things are just crumbling all around us. And we feel that inside of us, we feel that around us, we feel it in the world. And we're certain when we wake up in the morning, this reality is there's no amount of goodwill, no amount of intelligence that seems sufficient to make a dent in the immense problems that we face. We're a people that need hope, and the scriptures are written to give us hope. And Paul's saying, even the Old Testament scriptures are written to give us hope, which means this the scriptures say of themselves that they are actually very functionally relevant. That if we listen to the word of God and apply it, it actually really can manifest itself positively in our lives in our families, in our cities, and in the world. So I'm gonna pray that right now for us, that the scriptures would give us hope this morning, and then we're gonna finish out this series in 1 Kings chapter 12. Father, I just pray um, that we would bring the reality of who we are right now to the reality of who you are. Father, I'm reminded that the only me that you can change is the real me, so I pray that we wouldn't hide from you, uh, that we would bring the truth of our anxieties, uh, the reality of our depression. Um, God, in all of our questions to you, and we just say to you, God, would you do what you tell us? Would you give us hope? For you know we need it, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this section of First Kings, uh, there's What you guys dealt with last week, there's this big transition from Solomon being this man God chose to build the temple, and Solomon being the man who, in humility, could have asked God for anything. He could have asked him for all kinds of stuff, and he asked him for wisdom. So there's this moment where Solomon in the scriptures is the shining example, and then come chapter 11, which is the chapter before we start, he just absolutely propels into a downfall. And what he propels into a downfall around is fundamentally that he stopped taking God's word seriously. And that's what the Bible, in simple form, calls sin, which we're gonna get to in a minute. But there's a a man, he's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, and then they have a congregation in Long Island as well. His name's A.R. Bernard, and he pastors a church called the Christian Cultural Center, which means nothing to most of you, but here's where it will mean something. He's Denzel Washington's pastor. You know who he is? So A.R. Bernard, I love and I love listening to. He's a teacher who um, would always get up on a chalkboard and he'd write on a chalkboard. He's a pastor, but he'd write on a chalkboard because that's kind of his style. Well, now they have like this great technology and there's this board that looks like a blackboard, but he's writing with what would be the equivalent of like an Apple pencil and he writes on. And it was this day he was speaking about sin And he said, there's four dimensions of sin. And he wrote up these four dimensions on this chalkboard. And it has stuck with me ever since and been so helpful. And he said this, sin in its four dimensions are this. The first dimension is the cosmic dimension of sin. The second one is societal. So sin is cosmic. It's societal. Number three, it's individual. And fourth is, he wrote up, it's ecclesial, which is a weird word that most of us don't understand, but it's basically the word for church and saying "churchial" is not grammatically correct. So he wrote Ecclesial on the board. Now, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 lay out this reality when it says don't love the world or the things of the world, and then it begins to go through and it speaks about the devil, the world, and the flesh. So when you think about the cosmic dimension of sin, the the name you'd put by that is the devil, which I understand in this room there are a lot of people like, okay, we're going to talk about the devil right now for real? I mean, we're in an educated city, the University of Arizona. Now that's questionable, but... (laughs) (laughs) Wrong place to say that. I I had to get it in somewhere. So we're in an educated city. We're going to honestly talk about the devil. But here's the reality If you're sitting in this room and you look at the world, you have to answer the craziness, the evil some way. Just last night, five more people were shot in a gay bar and killed in Colorado Springs. Like, what is this if there isn't a reality of good and evil operating in the world? The Bible says that's real. And cosmic sin comes into the world When, the Bible says, this angel Lucifer didn't heed God's word and recognize God as God, and he rebelled in pride, not heeding God's word, and Lucifer became the devil. The intellectual genius C.S. Lewis, which would be recognized by those who call themselves Christians and not, said it was through pride that Lucifer became the devil but the cosmic reality of sin is operating. This is the reality that when you live in the world, there's something beyond what your eye can see, but what your senses intuit that there really is evil in the world. The cosmic dimension of sin. Then the societal dimension of sin, the Bible says, is actually taking the lies, the cosmic lies that are there, and appropriating, acting on those in society, so now we look and we go, Man, the problems we're up against are beyond just you and I changing our individual lives. Like, how are we ever going to change this issue? Politicians campaign on both sides on multiple issues that say the world is just not right. right. We just came out of a midterm election. Are they not saying that? Now, they blame each other, but the truth is we're up against something that is societal, that feels even bigger than society. It feels cosmic, but it's societal. Then the reality is we are implicated in it. You are and I am. That's the individual reality. That's the way most people think about sin is just in disobedience or just in a way that you're not doing the things you should do and you're doing a bunch of things that you know you shouldn't do. The individual dimensions of sin. Then... Sin is ecclesial. And this is the one that doesn't get talked about as much, but everybody recognizes. Is there sin in the church? Can I get an amen? Yes. So there's these four dimensions of sin, cosmic, societal, individual, and ecclesial. Now you see this all throughout 1 Kings. This reality of a people called by God's name to embody who God is to the world. That's what the nation of Israel was meant to be. And God just said, just follow me but this whole series starts because they go, you know what? We're watching what all these people are doing around us and we want a king just like the other nations. That's the way the whole series starts and if you follow these first and second kings, you begin to watch and the reality is the world flourishes. The nation of Israel flourishes and things flourish when they heed God's word. When they don't, things crumble. And that's right where we are to end this series is things crumbling in the nation of Israel. But here's the truth. In this complex system of sin, sin if we want to understand it at its baseline core level is this. Sin is always, at the core, sin is always a dismissal and disregard for God's word. The moment Solomon, the king in just a chapter before, heeds God's word, things go well. The minute he begins to go, you know what? I'm a bit smarter than God. I know he told me not to marry foreign wives. 700 of them, by the way. I have no idea how you get 700 wives. That just feels impossible. But the truth is, he began to think, you know what? I can build Israel better. I'll create these alliances. The best way to do that is develop other wives, marry them, then we can protect ourselves. He had all of his own wisdom in there which went against God. But all the while, the man who built the temple, let me ask you this about Solomon. Do you think the man that built the temple, his pride and joy, continued to worship in the temple? What do you think? Yes. So that means he's worshiping in the temple to honor God while dismissing God's word. Is there sin in the church? So he begins to dismiss God's word. At the core, sin is always a dismissal and disregard for God's word. Cosmic sin, how Lucifer becomes the devil. Societal sin, claiming to be wise, Paul says, we become fools. And that begins to impact us, our children, and our world. Sin is a disregard and dismissal of God's word. And oftentimes, I want you to hear this. The reason that's true is in this very sentiment of we want a king like all the other nations is we look at society and we begin to go, you know what? At the core, us listening to God, us doing what God says, feels like it's totally outside of our control. Like we're really just going to listen to God, leave Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, and just wait on him for food? We're honestly gonna do that. We're honestly gonna believe that God's saying don't marry foreign wives, which makes us susceptible to all the pressure and danger of these nations invading us. We're just gonna trust him in that? We would far rather be in control. We want a king like all the other nations. The core of that is what we're always grasping after. At the core, the dismissal of God's word really is a dismissal of I don't trust faith. I don't really believe this is gonna make its way to a functional life. You know, when I said before, if what Paul said in Romans 15, four is true, this sense of his word gives hope, that means it's functionally today relevant to our lives and relevant not just to our lives, but to the leaders of corporations, the governing authorities, the people that are answering the big complex systems of the world. But when we disregard it, at the core is we're going, no, we trust ourselves to answer these problems more than we trust a God or the God. So there are these moments God talks in the Old Testament, and it's right here in our passages, where he says, because you didn't didn't heed my word, because you didn't obey me, Catastrophe is gonna happen. And it feels a little like, God feels like a narcissist. (laughs) Like, really? Like, you're just gonna punish us like that? There's a uh, famous quote by an old Presbyterian pastor named H.H. Farmer, and he says this, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. When you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Splinters. The ancient holy scriptures in the Bible, in the, the author of the book of Hebrews says this about the world, specifically about Jesus. He says that he sustains the world. He spoke, his word spoke into existence. He sustains it with his powerful word. If that's true, the grain of the universe is the character of God implemented by his word. So if you go against the grain of the universe, the word of God, you will get splinters. It isn't that God's a narcissist. Eight days ago, my wife was in Tucson with my youngest daughter who just started playing club soccer. And she was down here playing in a tournament. My boys went their directions. And Saturday night, my 11-year-old daughter, who in January will turn 12, Lucy, said, I'm hungry, and I said, do you, here's an option, do you want me to go get food and bring it back and you and I can eat it together, or do you want to go on a date? Out. She's like, let's go out. So we ran around the corner to this place called the Parlay, and she decided that she wanted calamari as an appetizer, a shrimp Caesar salad as her meal, and then I said, do you think you'll want dessert at the end? Well, the waiter said, you are going to want dessert because we have a brown butter cake with fruit puree and ice cream on top. And I said, Lucy, make room. Trust me. So when the it came, here's the dessert. Brown butter cake, fruit puree, and ice cream on top. And she's just smiling. So I'm like, I'm going to take a picture and send it to her mom. And her mom writes back, why don't you take me on a date like that? <laughs> but I'm looking at her and we literally bite into this thing and it is majestic like it was incredible how good this dessert was so at that moment dad's word speaks to her and says trust me goodness is there she trusts me and she gets that smile and every bite she took she's like dad this is amazing So God's word, trusting this will be good, is the same motivation my father had when we went out to eat when I was a kid and when we sat down at the table, I looked and sitting there was a bottle of red stuff and all I thought in my child mind was red is good. (laughs) Red Starburst are the best Starburst. (laughs) Red Pop-Tarts are the best Pop-Tarts. Red Jelly Bellies are the best jelly bellies, red stuff's good. I'm like, I want that. He goes, no, no, no. I'm like, but it's red. It's like a bottle of red. <laughs> no, son, no, this will burn your mouth. And all I'm thinking is you're holding out on me. <laughs> you're, a, you're a liar. He's like, don't take it. So I grab it, no, grab it, no. Then all of a sudden conversation progresses. I grab it, take off the lid. Whew! My mom's like, Tyler, I'm like ho- home alone if you guys are old enough to know. Like, ha ha! Right? Like, I'm screaming. My dad's like, You freaking deserve it. Right? <laughs> my, my mom's like, I feel so bad for him. He's like, I don't at all. <laughs> the kid got what he deserved. Now, the motive of me to my daughter and the motive of my dad to me are the same motive. I love you. Do it. Don't do it. God's not a narcissist. He's a really good father. He's saying, I made this world. Move along the grain of my word and you will be blessed. Don't and you'll be cursed. And it will continue to impact you like it did my stomach that night. I, as a child, never knew. I'm like it hurt my mouth why does it now hurt my stomach it burns inside me again my mom's like honey my dad's like fool (laughs) listen to my word just as a sub statement of this this is why god's word is not just about the end result it's about the process in redemption we say this thing do the lord's work the lord's way in our society there are all kinds of people proclaiming the name of christ who talk in ways that they say ends justify the means no they don't god's word is god's word you don't get to get to god's end by not loving people by not using your tongue in the way god says to use your tongue The way you do something is as important as the result you think you will attain by doing it the wrong way. Remember H.H. Farmer's words, when you go against the grain of the universe, you will get splinters. So as we look at Solomon disobeying, it then leads to all of these prophecies. Like now what you're called to lead in the nation of Israel is gonna splinter 12 different ways. And then, who it should have been entrusted to you is through your line and through your son. Now there's this man, Jeroboam, who comes up. And God says to Jeroboam, just do my word and things will go well. Just like my dad did. Jeroboam, just do my word. And very clearly, Jeroboam doesn't do it. And so now there's this son of Solomon in chapter 12 named Rehoboam. And the whole way this flows itself out proves what I just said to you. Sin, going against the grain of God's word, has cascading consequences. Sin has cascading consequences. In these moments that we just think, ends justify the means, or this isn't really that big of a deal. Like, I know what I should do, but I'm just not going to do it. Then all of a sudden you're sitting months later or years later like, why didn't I do it? Or this thing that's presenting itself to you right now and you're going, I know I should not do this. Realize this, sin begets sin. Parents sit with their kids oftentimes and go, are you telling the truth? And they want to know, what did you do? And the kid in their mind, just like you and I do, even as adults, is we did something wrong and then in order to cover it up, what we do, so it was sin, but then we lie to cover it up. Then we go, are you lying? No, I lie again. And then I lie again. And then I begin to hide all of this stuff. And the truth of God's word is there's nothing that hidden that won't be exposed. And now you put yourself in a prison that you build up all around you because sin begets sin begets sin. That's what sin tries to do is live in the darkness. Sin has cascading consequences. It reminds me of my phone. I love the iPhone's design. So I just, I like to have it without a case. My wife's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) So then I drop my phone. If you can see it, it's just shattered all on the back right now. My wife's like, oh, wow, you broke your phone. (laughs) So now... My not listening to my wife's wisdom um, leads to a broken phone. And then when she goes, oh, wow, I want to curse her like seven, way, like seven different ways. And then I'm thinking this cascading consequence of this now looks terrible on the back. The design I love looks horrible and I got to pay ninety nine dollars because I have Apple care, it would have cost more, but now I gotta pay $99, then I don't just, they'll send me a new phone. So then when they send me a new phone, I've gotta take the SIM card out of this one, put it in the next one, and now I have to wait for all my apps to reload. And then you know what happens after my apps reload? This is the cascading consequence of my stupidity of not putting a case on my phone. You know what happens after that? I have to remember all my passwords. (laughs) That's like impossible. The cascading consequences of sin Are so real, and yet when you read the Bible and you live in the real world, here's a truth that just came out of a book I'm engaging with. And the the author said this Humans agree to give up meaning in exchange for power. Humans agree to give up meaning, you could put in faith, in exchange and here's actually what the author says, for the perceived sense of power. That sin at its core is us exchanging the word of God for for a perceived sense of power. But here's what's amazing in this passage. There's this moment where Rehoboam takes over, and this is what blows me away about God is disobedience, disobedience, chaos is coming. Now the fracturing of a nation is in the midst of happening and God gives Rehoboam this chance. He's now the leader and all of the nations are coming together to establish his kingship. And Jeroboam, this man who was a part of his father's entourage, if you will, even comes himself. And these people go, your father was really hard against us. Would you lighten the load and treat us well? In Rehoboam, it says, goes to the older men who served with his father. And he says, hey, listen, they're asking me to lighten the load. Now, if you read this passage right, we don't have the time to go through verse by verse, but when the people said lighten our load, and they said, if you do, we will serve you forever. Now, who was in that audience? Members of all the tribes of Israel including Jeroboam, who'd been promised he would be king. And they're all going, just do it. In the midst of all of their darkness, God gives an opportunity for the king to heed wisdom. God is always making light shine in the darkness. Division's about to come. There's a moment unity can be created through what? Service. The elders... Those who were wise, look at them and go, listen, if you lighten their load, and here's basically what they say, and treat them like human beings, treat them the way you would want to be treated. That golden rule that was written in a lot of kindergarten classrooms, treat them the way you would want to be treated. They'll serve you forever. And in turn, when you look at the passage, unite Israel that was fracturing and fraying at every level. Give us what the world today would call servant leadership. He hears it and he goes, Hmm. and it says he disregards the wisdom of the elders. This moment God said, my light's shining in the darkness, he goes, no, and he goes to all his buddies, his age buddies. He's like, what should we do? Tell them that your father, your father led and ruled them like this, and he's a fraction of the way you're going to lead. He punished them with whips. You're going to punish them with scorpions. That your hand is far thicker than his hand is. Exert your power, Rehoboam. Rehoboam disregards the wisdom and he goes, I'll exert my power. Rehoboam agrees to give up meaning and service in exchange for perceived power but who provided the opportunity to reunify god did through the wisdom of these men and he continues to show up so now the kingdom fractures the people hear that when rehoboam comes back and goes i'm not going to lighten your load they go forget you forget the house of david we're not israel if you don't serve us we have no experience experiential reality in the house of David forget you and they leave and the kingdom fractures and Rehoboam now has a moment where he's like we're going to war with them. So here's what happens disobey God's word don't heed wisdom fracturing happens what happens after fracturing? Fighting. War. James speaks about this what is it that causes fights and quarrels amongst us? Is it not that we don't get what we want and so we fight and quarrel? That's true on an interpersonal level, that's true in your family, and it's true in the world. So they begin to fight, and who enters in and goes, stop, don't do it? Some of you guys haven't read the passage. God. God shows up and goes, Rehoboam, don't fight. Don't go to war. And Rehoboam, at that moment, heeds and listens to God's word. He heeds and listens to God's word at that moment, and this leads me to a last statement that is so functionally relevant. A simple act of obedience is the way to create a tsunami of restoration. When we look at the problems in a world, or you look at the problems in your family, the problems in your relationships, and you go, I don't even know, it's so massive, the mountain's so huge, it seems impossible. Here's what God's saying to you. Take a simple act of obedience. So when you go, there's massive tension amongst me and this person, and you hear the Bible say, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with people, and you get prompted to go, should I call him? Here's what God would be saying. Call him, and all of your human rationality is gonna go, it will do nothing. It couldn't do anything. And God's saying, try it. A simple act of obedience is the way to create a tsunami of restoration. Simple acts of obedience lead to a harvest of righteousness where what we consider small acts of disobedience lead to, what does the Bible say? Darkness, destruction, death, division, but simple acts like treat them the way you want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sin has cascading consequence. Simple acts of obedience have an opportunity to create tsunamis. Tsunamis of restoration. Remember in the Bible, and maybe you don't, These moments when we look at situations and we go, this is impossible. And Jesus says, you're right, with man, parentheses, exchanging meaning for a perceived sense of power. Humanly speaking, you're right, impossible. Those of you who grew up in Sunday school, fill this in for me. But with God, all things are possible. If God's upholding the universe by the word of his power, heeding his word has power. God's word is perfect. It's pure and it's powerful. A people who simply believe that and are willing to be looked foolish by the world because we believe what Paul said What Paul said to the Corinthians was this, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength and the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So we heed his word. The very thing so many of these kings didn't do and the nation of Israel didn't do when they said, we want a king like all the other nations. Might we be a people? Might you be an individual? Who says, I'm not going to heed the wisdom of the nations or those around us. I'm going to heed the wisdom of God. I'm going to go along the grain of the universe, not against it. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we end this series that we would be a people who heed your word. God, that we would trust your word. Give us faith to believe what you say to us. And God, right now, I pray specifically for those who are in this room that think this simple act of obedience will do nothing. God, remind us that these simple acts of obedience can create a tsunami of restoration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.